We continue reading from the words of the psalmist. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 107 has used the theme of poverty to riches, showing that it's God that delivers us out of our despair through his, God's great riches. It's not our skill, as we have seen, but because what God has done. And our resources are the great riches of Jesus Christ. This morning... The call goes out to all who are needy, weary, and at the end of your rope and your human resources, come, listen to the covenant love of the Lord as the word of God is preached. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 11. As well, turn your bulletins to the outline. As we face, anticipate this, this coming year, as we finished Peter, I figured it would be a great time to think of this coming year and, and reflect upon it and, um, in anticipation. So I thought I'd preach on God's providence. And Providence, as you may or may not know, is a big theological word that simply describes God's care of this world. It's defined as his most holy, so it's different, it's other, wise, powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So it's God's care. It's God's upholding in this world, Hebrews 1. It's his ordaining what we do, it's, our, it's his ordaining as far as our thoughts, even our thoughts. Um, and, uh, um, and so I thought we'd spend some time fellowshipping around this theme this morning. So we'll look at a couple verses. First verse we're going to be looking at is Romans 11, 33 through 36. This will be our springboard verse into it, and uh, where we'll talk about um, God's providential care, his uh, providential dealings with regards to us, his people. This is God's word, brothers and sisters, the word of a king. So let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect at the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our sovereign Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege you've given us now to to fellowship with you around your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we 
look at various passages this morning that you and your grace and your kindness would condescend indeed and grant us grace to see, behold, um, and fellowship with you. Just as we just prayed in that using a song, God, we pray, Jesus, be the guest at this meal and open our eyes and feed us. Feed us richly upon you, Lord, we pray. Give me grace to preach your word, therefore, with accuracy. And, and Lord, wed it with the need of us, your people, that we indeed might be a peculiar people, as described in Acts, a people of, who are not of this world, but in it and by your grace are used by you to bring the glorious message of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you will recall after the Exodus, and after the time that God's people sojourned at the base of Mount Sinai, and after the failed attempt of taking the promised land out of fear, because of fear, And then after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God brought his people to the east side of the River Jordan, just northeast of the Dead Sea. And there he prepared his people to enter the promised land. If the Exodus is the picture of redemption in the Old Testament, then the conquest is the picture of entering into glory. The Puritans picked up on this, and they viewed the crossing of the River Jordan as, as death, entering into the new heavens and the new earth. And it's a scary time, a frightening time. And it was for God's people, even though this was an, an, an epical time in redemptive history, an incredible time, a high point. Nevertheless, with the warnings that Moses gave God's people, they knew that the future at best was tenuous. In a year from that moment, from six months from that uh, a moment, which sons would be dead? Which wife would be widowed? Which children would be fatherless? And so they had a lot of questions. Their hearts, the announcement as glorious as it was, nevertheless, raised in them a lot of fear, a lot of doubts, and a lot of questions. And so Moses, God through Moses, spoke to his people and he told them in Deuteronomy 29... The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, our children, that we might observe, observe the Lord uh, or the word of God. What are, what are the things revealed that were given to God's people? Well, clearly from that passage, it's God's word. It's, it's God intended that his people should be consumed as they enter into the promised land with God's word. And not just learning theology, but did you, did you hear what I just quoted? Observing God's word, allowing God's word to sink richly and deeply into their heart and soul, that they might be changed and live and, and uh, breathe by it. Well, what are the secret things that belong to God? Well, the secret things are the secret things that relate to the future. All the fears, all the concerns. God said, those belong to me. That's my job, Christian. Your job is to invest yourself and consume yourself with this, my word. Living it, loving it, being changed by it, sharing it. But the future, that lies with me. Brothers and sisters, it's been 3,500 years since God gave that message to his people 
And though the future that, that lies in front of us in 2021 is not near as dramatic as God's people had, but it's just as uncertain. What's going to happen with COVID? Next year at this time, we're we going to be worshiping in masks. Biden now will be president. What's going to happen under Biden for four years? I read this past week in Fortune magazine that over 100,000 businesses have shut their doors due to our government's response to COVID. What's going to happen with the economy? And if nothing else, COVID has taught us as God's people. It's a sign of the times. We've talked about that. It's a message to the world that unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. I'm not sure how much the church is, is, is sharing that a message. But it's also a message, what we've seen, ought to be a warning to us, God's people, that this nation in which we live is not a friend of grace. It would rather have people gather at strip joints, get abortions, protest publicly with violence, or go get alcohol, than worship God. So what does the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years hold for us with little kids or grandkids? God, what's going to happen? And then there's the personal concerns. We've got health issues. We've got relationship struggles. We've got concerns about tomorrow with regards to to this and that. Brothers and sisters, we at at any given moment are filled, like Martha, with so many concerns about tomorrow. God's message is very clear. Brothers and sisters, the secret things belong to me. What belongs to you is my word. Don't get caught up with that which is not your responsibility, and it is not your responsibility to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, or even to be burdened by it. That having been said, if indeed our focus is God's word, my question is, with a smile, does God's word say anything about the future? I'm not supposed to be concerned with the future. That belongs to God. But what does God's word say about God's providential dealings about tomorrow? And if you ask God's word, since this is what we're to be consumed by, if we ask of it, we'll find that the Bible has a whole lot more to say than just simply the secret things belong to God. It says a whole lot more than the three things I'm going to share with you this morning, the three passages. In fact, as we go, you'll see other, other statements in these verses which have direct implications with regards to the future, which I'm not going to touch upon. But this morning, let's look at three. Three truths with regards to God's providential dealings as it relates to the future. The first one is, is God's providential dealings are beyond us. Okay, not only are they secret, but quite frankly, they're beyond us. Notice Romans 11.33. We read, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The two key words, unsearchable, unfathomable. 
Unsearchable is used one time in the Bible. It's not used in the Septuagint, and it has no Hebrew equivalent, at least based upon my uh, studies. Therefore, we're really left to, to, um, to the next word to determine what Paul's trying to say here. His um, judgments are, are um, unsearchable, and that must be parallel to his ways are unfathomable. Well, what does that word mean? Well, that word... It does have a definition, a good one in Scripture. The root deals with your feet. Um, and it means to be untraceable. It's a hunting word. It's, to, it's a tracking word. Um, it means that the track that an animal is taking is untrackable, untraceable. You can't follow it because he just didn't leave enough of a sign of where that animal went. In fact, the different translation, ESV translates this word inscrutable, about as helpful as unfathomable. The New King James puts past finding out. That's getting closer. Okay, God's, God's ways are past finding out. We just, we just can't track them. And the NIV, uh, bullseye, they, they translate it as um, the paths are beyond tracing. That's exactly the idea. God's paths, what God does, his ways, what he plans is untrackable. Now think about that for one moment and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Because this is the only other place that this word's used in the New Testament. And it is quite helpful for us to understand in our understanding of this word. So notice Ephesians 3.8 and how it uses the exact same word as used in Romans. Ephesians 3.8, Paul wrote, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. And he's talking about the glorious grace. If you read the context of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Christ, who in other generations was not made known with regards to his ministry to the Gentiles, etc., etc., etc. So to me, this, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, same word, riches of Christ. Now let me ask you something. Are the riches of Christ unknowable? No. In fact, you have an outline in front of you. I, got you. I think I gave you a list of, um, no, I didn't, um, of the unfathomable riches of Christ. There's, there, in Scripture, we see some of those riches. In fact, if you look up in, up in this uh, chapter to verse 5 and following, you'll see a facet of the riches of Christ. So this word does not mean unknowable. It doesn't mean that we can't apprehend and grasp a little bit of it. But it does mean that for us, as we think of a, of a, of a path or a, um, you know, um, what do you call their um, a course that people leave in the sand, it's untraceable. It's enough there for us to say someone walked here, but not enough to follow where they went. That's the idea behind this word. So it doesn't mean we can't see it. It means what we see is very little, and so little we can't trace it. But we can see it. And so in Scripture, we read in Romans 2 of God's riches that he gives us in Jesus Christ. His kindness, forbearance, and patience. Ephesians 2.4, his mercy and great love. Ephesians 3.16, uh, you can read down. His glory, assurance, Colossians 2.2. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, I'm Ephesians 1.3. Everything pertains to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. There's many more in Scripture. And they all 
paint this glorious picture of the riches of God's mercies, of his glory, of his grace. But by using this word unfathomable, Paul is telling us, you know what, brothers and sisters, as much as you might delight in God's grace today, you might delight in the riches that are the benefits that are ours in Jesus Christ. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait till you get to glory. Because right now, the little bit that we see, and to me, personally, there's a lot of bit in God's word about God's riches, Christ's riches. But the little bit we see, oh, brothers and sisters, wait till you get to glory. Wait till you look back upon this this world. You will see the glory and the greatness of God's love and kind and care and compassions. Amazing. And that's when we take this and go back to Romans. And it, here it applies to God's providence. And we read that his, his ways are unfathomable. That doesn't mean that we can't see God's providential care in our lives. The Puritans used to say providence, like Hebrew, is best read backwards. Man, when you look back upon your life, you and I go, wow, look how God acted. My first year of college, I had a football scholarship. The third day of practice, I broke my neck, C5. And because of that, um, I decided my football career's done. It just wasn't worth it. So I quit after the, the season. I went in and said, I don't, want, I don't want my scholarship renewed. I'm done playing this game. But I lost my scholarship. I couldn't afford to go to the school I was going to, so I transferred. And that was somewhat of a disappointment. Somewhat of a crisis when I sat there with a broken neck, wondering what my future held, Would I be paralyzed? What's going to happen? But do you know what? As I look back, if I had not broken my neck, I wouldn't have transferred. If I hadn't transferred, I wouldn't have met my lovely wife. So I look back upon my past and I say, praise God for that. At the time, I wasn't praising him. At the time, I was struggling and betwixt, Lord, what are you doing? But now I look back and I say, praise be to God that I broke my neck. Praise be to God that I did this. Praise be to God that, better yet, God did this through me. And every one of these are difficulties in my life. You have the same testimony. Every one of us could stand up and go, wow, this bad thing happened, but it it led open to this incredible. Brothers, that's the unfathomable ways of God. You look back and you go, God was there all the time. As we look forward, we don't necessarily see it. But we got to see that, brothers and sisters, you look back, God's ways are indeed trackable to a degree. You can't get the full effect, but you can see parts of it here and there, here and there. Years ago, you you probably heard of this because it's, it's, it's been around, but it's a true story. There's an elderly minister who had a bookmark in his Bible. Anytime he went to a home where there was tragedy, he'd pull out at some point in the ministry time, he would pull out this bookmark and he'd show the reverse side. It was made of silk and the back side, on the front side was a motto. On the back side, it was a, a, a tangled mess, a horrible mess. And he'd have them examine this rather large bookmark, really nice, delicate silk, and he'd say, what do you see? And, and they'd say, nothing. It looks like a mess. And if it's the entire family, they, he'd say, pass it around. What do you see? It's a mess. And then he'd say, turn it over at one point. And what was written, the motto was, God is love. 
Brothers and sisters, you got to see that you and I are looking forward at a bookmark at the, on the underside of that bookmark. God's providential dealings seem like a tangled mess. Lord, why did you have my job be lost? Why did I get this illness? Why are these things happening? Why aren't I getting better? Why am I stepping back and not going forward? What's going on? But you and I both know this. you got to know this. When we step in eternity future, we're going to look back and see every, just like we do now, every providence of God, be it bitter or be it sweet, was by a God who loves us. He's doing it out of love. It's incredible. And thus, application. Brother and sister, we got to get out of the business of judging God by what he does. It's very natural. It's a, I think we are born with this default uh, need, uh, desire to judge people. We naturally do it because we relate to God on the basis of our, our conduct. So we naturally expect that we can judge God based upon what he does. But the problem, the huge flaw is we don't have full knowledge of what God's doing. If I were to judge God when I was in my first college with a broken neck in the hospital and the doctor coming in saying, if you move wrong, you'll be paralyzed for the neck down. Don't move. I at that moment would say, oh, yeah, you believe. I wasn't saying. Actually, I was saying the baby, uh, a Christian. I easily could have said, so this is what God does to his children. But I look back now upon that. I realize the hands of love and silk and care were all over that. Got a free year of school for three days of practice. And a little bit of pain, right? I got a wife. And now I've got six kids. And two more through marriage. Wow, eight children. This is incredible. God, thank you for the broken neck. Right? We cannot judge God by what he does. And that's a theme of Job, actually. We tend to look at what God does and and derive um, uh, conclusions about God's character. And what does God say in Deuteronomy 29? Secret things belong to me. What belongs to you is my word, and therefore you are to take God's word and derive things about God's character. You see, that's how God intended it to, to be. God would have us live by faith, not by sight. God would have us live by faith in what he tells us in his word. And therefore, you and I must get out of the business where we spend our lives looking at this bitter providence or that and looking at this bad thing and going, that must be a reflection of God rather than realize and be, and, I'm sorry, rather than realizing, brothers and sisters, what just happened is untraceable. You can't trace that as to whether that's a good thing or bad thing. We don't know. But this we do know. The God who ordained that bad thing is good. And what he ordained is out of love for his people. And what he ordained is going to have an incredible effect etc., etc., because that's all what God's Word says. I love the example that we have in Psalm 119, or at least the verse we have in Psalm 119. Listen to it. The psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous. And he's saying his providence is right. That's our next point. And that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. It wasn't out of anger. 
He wasn't out of a God getting at the end of his rope and being a little angered and, and, and agitated. It was out of faithfulness. You know what it means to be faithful? Ably trusted. God was, was working according to his bigger plan. And so he prays, Oh, may thy loving kindness comfort me according to the, thy word to thy servant. What a great prayer. Lord, I don't understand what's going on, but I know it's not bad. In the short run, it might be bad, but I know ultimately it's not bad. It can't be. So my prayer to you is, God, comfort me with your loving kindness. May the promises of your word be that which buoys me in my walk and comforts me. We see this worked out in Paul's life. Remember, Paul had that thorn, and he went to the Lord three times, says, God, make it depart, make it depart. And in a limited way, God told him why. It was to keep him from exalting himself. But ultimately, that wasn't the ultimate reason. It ultimately was to glorify God. It was to, to, to make Christ big and Paul small. But I love it. Listen to the words that Paul wrote. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my, this is it. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. What an interesting response on the part of God. To his continuing request, God did not give him a promise that all would be better. Right? Secondly, if you look at this text... He didn't give him a promise that, it, that, that this thorn would only be for a short time. Nor did he give him a full explanation of why. What does he do, do uh, give him? He gives him this promise. I love you. I love you. And my love in your life is all that you need. My grace is sufficient for you. You're my child. You're the apple of my eye. This is not because I've lost my temper. You've got to believe that, Christian. Our future, what happens in 2021, tomorrow, it will, will not be because God has lost his temper and has said, you know what, Christian, you've missed up, you've messed up this many times. I'm done caring about you. I'm going to give you a little bit of pain. I'm going to watch you squirm. Not that at all. Everything God does in your life is the overflow of his love, of his grace, of his care. And the question is, this moment in your life, this redemptive moment, will you trust God and so live by faith? Or will you choose rather to live by sight? Choose for yourselves today, brothers and sisters. So first thing we learn about God's providential dealings with his people is it's beyond us. We can't judge it. We can't know it the full extent. We don't know the full end. We're left to simply trust God. And that leads to a very helpful question. I know I've shared this with you before, but it has been life-changing in my life. I want to share it with you again. And that is, when difficulty comes, do not ask why. That is a question we have no answer for. The Bible doesn't give it. God doesn't give it. God's ways are beyond us, untraceable, untrackable. Don't ask why. But what you should do is you, you have to train yourself to stop asking why, because that's our default question, and start asking why not. And when I do that, it's like a spring. 
in the desert. God, why did you not ordain this? And I know biblically it's not because he doesn't love me. It's not because he's not Lord of the universe. It's not because he set up the world in its motion and has stepped back. It's not because he was sleeping like the gods of Baal, right? The false gods known as Baal. Think of Elisha, right? Are they sleeping? Um, it's not because of any kind of anger or bitterness or, or, or wrath on the part of God. It's not. So now our prayer is, God, may your loving kindness comfort me during this time. Because I know it's not because of those things. I don't know why. But I trust I'm going to look back at some point in my life, either on this side of the grave or the next, and say, wow, praise be to God that that happened. But until then, we'll walk by faith. Second thing we learn about God's providential dealings is that they're perfect. Notice with me Psalm 145. Turn with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, this is Psalm of David. And he's just praising God for his, his glorious character. And he comes in verse 17 and says this incredible statement about God's providence. He says, The Lord is righteous. The Greek word, the Hebrew word, Greek word means in accordance with right. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So what we just said, trust in the, the, the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God. He's kind in all, his, in all his deeds. Everything that happens in your life, he's being kind. That's a recap. But notice what the text says here. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Most associate the word righteous with moral uh, perfection. And that's not bad when it applies to, to God. But let me give you the definition real quickly and then we can apply it. The word righteous does not ultimately mean moral perfection. We read of such passages like in Jonah. Uh, or I'm sorry, that uh, um, I'm sorry, not Jonah. Joseph, Matthew 1.19, being a righteous man, did what he did. Or Noah, God saw that, that he was a righteous man, Genesis 6, 9. Ezekiel talks a lot about the righteous man. When God sees a righteous man, and this occurs, versus the wicked man. So you hear this word righteous man, you go, does that mean that they're without sin? They're morally perfect? Absolutely not. The word righteous does not mean moral uh, perfection. Righteous is not a self-defining term. That's the key you've got to know. Just like world. World is not a self-defining term. You need a context to understand what does world mean. Likewise, you need a context to understand what is righteous. So, for example, you could use righteous. I've shared this. Biblically speaking, you could use righteous of a prisoner who obeys all the laws of the prison. That man's a righteous prisoner. What does that mean? It means he's being faithful to all the things that are required of him. When the door opens, he steps out. When, he, when they say, go into the yard, he goes into the yard. He doesn't fight. You know, he, when it says to clean up your food, he clean, clears his uh, tray. He's a righteous prisoner versus a scoundrel. You can use this word of a person who was falsely accused and then shown to be right. We would use the word vindicated. In the Greek, it would be righteous. This man was, 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 was made righteous, was shown to be righteous. You mean morally perfect? No, in the context of he didn't commit that crime. 
So righteous literally means right wiseness or in accordance with right. And the right has to be determined by the context. When we read a passage like this which says God is righteous in all his ways, God is in accord with right. It's so helpful to think of it in that way. God is in accordance with right in all his ways. Well, wait a second. What's the right God's in accord with? Well, his own character. God's character sets the standard of right when he made this world. So get this, God is in accordance with his own character in everything he does. Do you understand what that means? That is so, I I think, very helpful to see that distinction. Which means there's never a time that, that a providence occurs, be it bitter or sweet, that is inconsistent with the character of God. And what's his character especially as, as we look upon him as God's people. He's just, he's holy, he's uh, righteous, morally pure. He's also loving and kind and compassionate. Everything God does is in accordance with the right. And the right in this context is his character. In that context, therefore, we understand righteous God or righteous in his ways refers to moral Uh, purity of course but it's more than that it's in accordance with his character and so you're filling there this means God's workings are in perfect agreement with his character and kingdom and brothers and sisters that is so relieving there's never a time that God's not on the throne people who, who go well I don't believe God is sovereign over the insignificant things of life. I mean, God set the thing going, but we have free will to choose whatever we want. So does God ordain all things? Well, God, the Bible says he does, but I think he does it in a way by looking down history. Da, 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 da. Well, that could possibly mean that things that are going on in this world is not in accordance with his character that he ordains. Which means I can, for one moment, think, God, this is not right. But if you understand God's ways are all righteous... They're all in accordance with who he is as a being. All of his ways, from the greatest to the smallest providences, from the sweetest to the most bitter, they're according to his character, which once again gives us the calling and the exhortation to trust him. Got the quote there that I use in my email, Scott Richardson. I love it. You know, if we had God's power, we'd change everything, wouldn't we? But if we had his wisdom, we'd not, we wouldn't change a thing. Because everything God ordains is in accordance with his character. And because he is holy, without sin, he is different uh, from us, holy. He's also uh, loving, gracious, kind. No mistakes. No mistakes. But you know what we tend to do when we think of God's providences? It makes me think of the story of the Spanish escorial. Um, escorial. The, it's, if you look it up online, it's this incredible building, which is just outside, built just outside of Madrid um, in the ancient monastery of the Augustinians. And this incredible building has this arch. This is written, built quite a few, uh, a, a couple centuries ago. It has this arch that is so flat. At the time, the king of Spain came and saw it and was afraid to walk underneath it because it might fall on him the architect to build a pillar right there in the middle of that arch. And the architect said, no, you don't need to. Physics, right? And the king said, he's the king. Don't care what you have to say about your physics. 
build the, the, the uh, pillar. So he built the pillar. When the king died, he came to the pillar and made this great reveal. He made the pillar a quarter inch short of the arch. A quarter inch. And um, passed a, wood, a, a little thing of wood underneath it to show that his arch over the 30 years, however long it was, never collapsed. If you take a tour of this monastery uh, today, you'll see this arch. And today, tour guides still pass a piece of wood underneath that, that arch between the pillar and the arch to demonstrate the excellence of the architect. Brothers and sisters, do you know what we tend to do with the arch that supports us by God's providence? In fear of what God might do, I've seen so many Christians do this. You're frightened that God might take one of your kids. So what do you got to do to appease God? You're frightened that God might take your spouse. So what do you got to do to appease God? As a preacher, I've had people come up as a confessor, in essence, and say to me, you know what? Just to pad it a little bit, I go to church every week. Because I don't want God to get upset at me. So we build these pillars to try to support or try to, if you will, force God's hand so that, the, so that that arch doesn't collapse on top of us. Brothers and sisters, the arch that God makes is perfect. And there's nothing that you can do or I can do to change that providence. It's, as it says here, it's righteous. It means it's in accordance with God's character. To change that providence would mean God would have to act contrary to what he already planned to do according to his character. So take comfort from that. God's ways are perfect. They're perfect. There could not be a better scenario for you in your life. And I dare say, as you look back, oh yes, we all have regrets. We do, because we're sinners. Think of the words of Eric Little, right? Do you regret not running in the 100 final? You better believe I regret it, but I have no doubts. Christian, that'll be us. We might regret the decisions we made that may have caused sin, which may have caused hurt and pain in someone's life. So we might have regrets, but I can look back upon my life and realize God, a good God, a righteous God, ordained everything in accordance with his character. And therefore, that too, by conclusion, must be what God ordained. It's perfect. Perfect plans. That brings us then to our last point. God's providential dealings, would you notice, are also good. Go to Romans chapter 8. You know the verse. Romans eight twenty-eight. We read this. It's the eighth benefit mentioned in Romans 8. Eight, Paul goes on to talk about the benefits after he shared the gospel and addressed a couple issues. Romans 8 is the benefit chapter, and he talks about eight different benefits that flow from a saving relationship of Jesus Christ, the riches of God's glory. And this is the eighth one, and the eighth one is this, and we know, I love this, we know. This isn't speculation. Every Christian here knows This is something we know, brothers and sisters. Now, the question is, do you? And by know, that means we believe. And by believe, that means we're not going to doubt it. We're going to act upon it. Do you really? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, if you've been called according to God's purpose, if you love God, then guess what? 
And I don't mean if you feel warm fuzzies in your heart. That means are you, are you trusting Christ? Guess what? All things in your life work together for good. What does that mean? The word good is the word agathos. Two different words in the Greek, primary words for good. Kalos, agathos. Kalos typically is, is, is in reference to beauty. Okay, so that's my wife is Kalos. She's a beautiful woman, right? Um, wow, what a beautiful painting, Kalos. But agathos refers to that which is essentially good in its essence, but, or therefore, as a consequence, has a beneficial result. That's agathos. It refers to something that's essentially good that always has a beneficial result. Okay? In the telos, if you will. So, as I've defined it here, I think you've got, it describes that which is being good in its essence is beneficial in its effects. So, for example, listen to how the words used. Romans seven twelve. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Same word. Therefore, to that which is good become a cause of death for me. Okay, so the word, he's very, very, uh, is that which is essentially good and should have a good effect. Did it produce death in me? That's a bad effect. So he's just saying maybe the law of God is not good because the law of God has a bad effect. Paul then writes here, may it never be. Okay, no way. It's agathos. It is essentially good and always has a good telos, a good effect. Okay, notice Rome, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul called the Thessalonian believers to follow after that which is good. He's talking about our practice. Follow after that which is essentially good and produces a good effect. That's the word. So when it says, and we know, <laughs> I love this. This is what we all profess to be true, or do we? If not, hopefully after today, you will. We know that God in his providence causes all things to work together, not only for that which is essentially good in God's eyes, but that which is good in our lives, beneficial in our lives. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying everything that occurs is in the end, you're going to look back and be able to say, that was beneficial in my life. Everything's working for my good. That's what Romans 8 is saying. Essentially good for God's glory, but also our good. And I love the qualification here. All things, utterly comprehensive, no um, um, uh, signif- um, a significant limit or qualification. None. All things, suffering, persecution, failure, pain, lack of faith, defeat, weariness, ill health, loneliness, sorrow, sickness, disease, all of it works together for good to our good effect for God's people. If you were to try to uh, quantify this, I want you to see the first greatest example of this, and I referenced this a couple weeks back, the death of Christ. Satan was involved in that death. Man, from the temptation in, in Luke 4, Matthew 4, all the way through his life, Satan was, a lar- was, was, was involved in Jesus. Satan, not demons, Satan. Now, Jesus cast out demons, but Satan was involved. He was at the upper room. Do you remember that? In Lord's Supper. And Satan filled Judas. So Satan was a large, large part of trying to mess up Christ's life. 
Thus Satan, we can, God concluded, is behind that cross. We know that from Genesis 3.15. But you know what God did? He took the greatest, most, uh, the worst possible event that Satan could manufacture. And he worked it for your and my good. And as a result, 1 Peter 2, by his wounds you were healed. 1 Corinthians 15, through Christ, though Christ, through Christ we have been given the victory through his cross work. He, Hebrews 2, in Christ's death, deliverance has been made for those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In 1 Corinthians 8 9, on account of the sacrifice of Christ, we have become rich. So God took the greatest bad this world could ever see and he worked it together for your and my benefit. Isn't that incredible? If God can do that with Calvary, what do you suppose he could do with a lost job? Or with ill health? Or with the tragedy? The loss of a child? The loss of a loved one? What could God do there if he can take the greatest bad, the greatest evil, and produce so much good? What could he do with the more insignificant ones? Now, all, for our lives, they're all significant. I'm not saying that they're not. But comparison to the cross of Christ, what could God do with that? And so though God's providential dealings are mysterious and perfect, they nevertheless are good. They have a positive effect. And thus, they mold and shape us. I've got, I do have this list in your outline. Would you notice, you can look them up on your own. They mold and shape us into a holy people. They testify. This is God's providences. They testify to our salvation. They serve as a vehicle for God's kingdom and glory. They endear us to Christ. They purify us. They produce in us an eternal way to glory far beyond all uh, comparison. Brothers and sisters, it's a small list. It could go on and on and on. That's what God does with all things in your life. All things are, are leading to those ends and more. I have a picture in your outline you probably don't know what it is. I don't know if I even mentioned it in the notes. And that picture is the inner workings of Big Ben. It's a little dark. I apologize. It should have lightened that picture. But though, that's what makes Big Ben in London, you know, that large clock tower in London, that's what makes Big Ben's clock work so accurately and so well. I've never seen it. I read the words of a man who took a tour and he said, when you're up there, you're seeing those big sprockets. One's going forward, one's going backwards. You're seeing big sprockets going really slow, small, small sprockets going really fast. And this man looked at this and realized in his mind, good night. Is that not a picture of Romans 8, 28? All things, all things. Think of all the sprockets and the, and, the, and the bolts and the screws and the nuts and the small things twirling and the big things going slow, one going forward, one going backward, and yet it keeps perfect time. All things in that board work together to produce a functioning clock. And he began reflecting and realizing, isn't that God's providence Man, we see wheels going forward in our lives and we rejoice. Man, I got the pay raise. I got the job. I got the girl. I got the child. Man, this is great. Things are going wonderful for me. But then we see those big wheels going backwards. And we say, man, oh man, I lost the job. And I lost the girl. And I lost that. 
And we see some wheels going really fast and we love it. Man, that was wonderful. That sermon went quick to today. And then there's those sprockets that are really large. And you go, oh, God, please, not another large sprocket sermon. At least if you're a kid. Brothers and sisters, isn't it glorious to look upon God's providences knowing exactly what Peter says, or Paul, all things work together for your good. It's incredible. Rutherford, I use this quote as I close, wrote these words. When you come to the other side of the water, glory, and have set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity and look back again to the waters and to your wearisome journey and shall see in that clear glass of endless glory nearer to the bottom of God's wisdom, ye shall then be forced to say, If God had done otherwise with me than he hath done, I had never come to the enjoying of this crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, that is an accurate description of what's going to happen to you and me when we enter into glory. May God give us the grace today to live by faith under a God whose providential dealings are beyond us, certainly, are perfect, and yet ultimately end in his glory and our good. May God give us the grace to trust him this day. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to have gazed upon these three passages and basked in the light of such riches, glorious descriptions of how you are functioning, operating in this world. Lord, indeed, the secret things belong to you. Grant every one of us here the grace to take that as a creedal statement in our lives. But God, as well, give us the grace to understand those secret things as your word describes them. We confess this day that they are mysterious. Lord, we are are so grateful for the footprints that we occasionally see as we look back and go, yes, there was God working. Thank you, Lord. But we confess on the whole, it's beyond us. So, Lord, give us the grace not to judge you by what you do, but by who you are. And allow who you are to change the way we view what happens in our lives. Secondly, Lord, we thank you that everything you do is perfect. Therefore, Lord, in accordance with your character, and therefore, Lord, for us, we can say not inspired or motivated out of anger or pettiness like the Greek gods of old. And lastly, Lord, thank you that all the things that you ordained for our lives are good. And Lord, today we say it by faith because there's so many things going on in our lives right now that we would say is not good. Lord, we hurt. We look at the future and we find ourselves questioning what's going to happen and perhaps we get uh, uh, consumed by it. Lord, I pray that you grant his grace as your people to allow the secret things belong to you. But Lord, to now invest in the glorious message of your word, a message that is such a delight to our souls and yet ought to be shared. God, grant us the grace indeed to make our delight in glory and joy your person, your work, as described in this book. We pray in Jesus' name.